The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Hello there, I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm your spiritual advisor, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 95 of The Big Picture for the week beginning February 19. And coming up on today's show... We dare to dive into the explosive subject of racism. Hidden figures and fences are new movies about African Americans affected by prejudice and inequality. And we also check out how old and new TV shows dealt with that very difference. That's right. And also here with us, Mark, is Sam Robinson. Sam, how are you doing? Oh, doing so well for a Sunday evening. Aren't yeah. you excited by the fact that we're up to 95? This is episode 95. I'm just eagerly anticipating what's going to happen for episode 100. Oh, actually, my goodness, Sam. I, we're going to have 100 hours of actually, the big picture on air, back to back. We haven't what? told Hope yet, but that's, that's actually what's going to happen. It will be the big picture-a-thon. <laughs> we could do a top 100 of the best shows yet. All right, well, let's get into movies. What is out at the cinema this week? Ben McKechn. Gentlemen, last Thursday, Silence opened Martin Scorsese's new film. Mark reviewed it on the show last week. Check out his review at bigpicturewebsite.com if you missed it. In short, I totally agree with Mark. It was terrific, if a little bit long and repetitive. And it is brutal, the film, at two and a half hours long for the length of time, but also for some of the graphic intensity of it. But it's incredible drama about Christian faith under fire and what you might do if you're being forced to reject Jesus. Silence is at cinemas now. One of the most unexpected sequels around, and look, this is coming after, I think 12 months ago, there was My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. I thought that was unexpected. Even more unexpected, I think, is Train Spotting 2, which is out. This That's a true story. Train Spotting 2. You should tell people what Train Spotting 1 is, is real. about and why it probably wouldn't have had a sequel. Yeah, given it was about junkies in Edinburgh, uh, and I won't I won't ruin the story for people if you haven't seen it, but uh, it's a big surprise that about 20 years later, Train Spotting is back. The original and, cast is in it. And they're still alive. Led by Ewan McGregor. <laughs> Danny Boyle, the director of it, who's gone on to big things since the original Train Spotting, particularly with Slumdog Millionaire. He's directing. It's written by the same guy who wrote the first one, Irvin Welsh. And a big warning, Transpotting 2 is like the original rated R. Hmm. But it's at cinemas this Thursday, and it was so notable, I thought I would point it out. All right. What's on the telly, Mark Hadley? Mate, this Monday, we actually have episode one of on the ABC of My Year 12 Life. Your Year 12 well, Life? not My Year 12 Life. <laughs> oh. That would have been amazing. Well, well, actually, oh, I can't wait for that. <laughs> We've been working on this one for 40 years. This <laughs> <laughs> so is finally bring it to the television. So, so now, it's not your year no, 12 it's life. Not. It's called my year 12 life. It's the stresses of this launch pad year for a, a bunch of kids, 14 in fact, 14 Australian students, as they document their own year 12 experience. They do it via daily video diaries and things like that. Uh, they talk about their ATARs and they talk about their struggles and they talk about their fears and they talk about... Basically, they do what they do on social media but now we get to watch it on telly. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I mean, it is... Actually, mm. the, the ads for it look pretty good. Yeah, and I think, seriously, if you've forgotten how hard this time of life can be for your kids, My Year 12 Life might be a good wake-up call. Also a great way of undoing all that counselling you went through. So, <laughs> there you go. My Year 12 Life kicks off this week. And also this week, take a deep breath. Netflix is releasing Ultimate Beastmaster Season 1. Ultimate Beastmaster? If you've ever Not asked- just an average Beastmaster. <laughs> the, the ultimate. ultimate. If you've ever wondered, asked the question, I wonder what it would be like if Sylvester Stallone presented a ninja-style warrior game show, 
I have never wondered that, but, <laughs> but is this the answer? You are in luck, okay, because Netflix has snapped up a series produced and hosted by Slime Self with other hosts taking on the duties as it travels around the world. It pits contenders from all around the world against each other in ninja-like competitions to find the ultimate beast master as they tackle the ultimate beast, uh, ultimate obstacle course called The Beast. And the winner will be crowned after 10 episodes and some great big beast off. Okay. Wow, when are you appearing on the show? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's basically a more intense version of Total Wipeout. I love that show, Total Wipeout. Do you <laughs> yeah, like it? Yeah, like, it's fun. Yeah, so, I know I shouldn't be giggling as hard as I am when people get hit in the face on that show, but I do I find sus- it rather amusing. I suspect this one is probably going to have less inflatable things and pools of water and more sharks and bladed things. <laughs> but that said, you know, Ultimate Beastmaster kicks off Netflix this week. All right, how about some entertainment news? Well, Chips, before we get to True or False this week and our first uh, What Your Kids Are Watching segment, I thought I'd bring you some entertainment news on this topic. Here we go. One of the, one of Australia's great film reviewers is now the subject of his own big screen film in the documentary Mark Hadley, a, no, not really, <laughs> not really, David Stratton, A Cinematic Life. It's coming out in cinemas on March the 9th. It's a personal journey through Stratton's boyhood cinematic experiences in England and when he migrated to Australia. And basically, da-da-da-da-da, him and Australian cinema going hand-in-hand for the past kind of like four decades. Um, Some big names are appearing in this documentary, everyone from Nicole Kidman to George Miller, Sam Neill, Brian Brown, Russell Crowe, Judy Davis, Jeffrey Rush, pretty much everyone you can list off that's been big on the Australian cinema scene across the last couple of decades are all appearing in David Stratton, not Mark Hadley, David Stratton, A Cinematic Life in cinemas on March 9. Guaranteed to be searing and insightful. Yeah, I can't wait for the sequel. Ben McKechn, A Cinematic Life. Okay. Well, if you missed that, uh, then don't miss this. Michael Bay, that great connoisseur of films such as Armageddon, Pearl Harbor and The Rock, and of course Transformers 1, 2, 3 and 4, is set to release his fifth in the Hasbro franchise, Transformers The Last Night. And in recent letters to fans, he said, it's a bittersweet thing for me. Oh, is it? I would have thought after five, you might be a little bit done. It's a bittersweet thing. He said, with every Transformers film, I've said it would be my last. I see the 120 million fans around the world who see these movies, the huge theme park lines to the ride, and the amazing Make-A-Wish kids who visit my sets, and it yet somehow keeps drawing me back. Oh, yeah, I think Michael. he's right. That's why he's doing it. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the fact that he was paid $80 million as a paycheck for the first Transformers film. Nothing um, at all. And everything else that came along afterwards. That is, in fact, Forbes' uh, highest movie-making you know, uh, professional in the world. So. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, there so you go. So Transformers but Last Night is on the way. So T6 is on the way. Uh, we can hope that this is, in fact, the last one, though I, that's not going to be the hope of my 13-year-old who's already counting down the days. So, All right. Well... I think it's time to get true or false. Yes, let's go into something a little more fascinating. Probably Australia's greatest Aboriginal actor was David Gulpilal, okay, the dark-skinned figure at the centre of benchmark productions like Walkabout, the TV series Boney and Rabbit Proof Fence and other things like that. Well, one of David Gulpilal's fondest movie memories, though, was working on the 1976 children's film Storm Boy. Has everyone seen Storm Boy? Mm, yeah. Yeah, look, it's almost like a rite of passage. I'm from South Australia, man. They basically enforced that you to watch that at school. Like, <laughs> they- that was, that was filmed in South Australia. They, they loved that movie over there. They shipped us in buses when I was at school to the <laughs> cinema. Everyone, quick, sit down, watch Storm Boy. Well, the lead pelican, Dum Dum, escaped from this. Uh, there were three pelicans involved in the okay. film. Wow. And they didn't actually go by their real names in the film, <laughs> by the way. Uh, but the lead pelican, <laughs> Dum Dum, uh, escaped from the South Australian Film Commission's swimming pool, where they lived between takes, and he did what? 
He A, caused havoc by crashing a swinging party next door. B, deposited an unsightly white mess on Gulpalil's lunch. Or C, attacked John Lennon and Jimi Hendrick, who were part of the film's promotion. Whoa. What did Dum Dum do? Well, you can cast your vote after this. Well, you may have noticed that the media are all the chatter about a bevy of cinematic releases that are all about the trials and triumphs of African-Americans. Hollywood's picture of black America has undergone an immense transformation in the 70 years that separated Gone with the Wind and The Help. So to get a sense of what spurred on Hollywood's change of heart, we asked Mark to take a look at the way the small screen cleaned up its black act, beginning with the 1970s sitcom... Good times. Don't you know what today is? Yeah, Blue Monday, followed by Broke Tuesday, followed by Disastrous Wednesday. From there, the rest of the week go downhill. (laughs) Today is the beginning of Black History Week. Well, sweet daddy, Williams is black. But you should be painting someone more relevant to black history. Relevant? Are you jiving? Sweet Daddy Williams owns three apartment houses, two Cadillacs, and a Lincoln. <laughs> ain't never worked a day in his life and ain't never been to jail. He's the same dude that got shot five times and ran seven miles to the hospital. <laughs> now, if that ain't black history, I don't know what is. So, Mark, that was a clip from 1970s sitcom Good Times. Do you reckon there's been a huge change or has there been a huge change in the way African-Americans have been portrayed on TV since the 70s? Yeah, if you basically look at the 70s, you see a tipping point as far as family television goes that involved black people. So, uh, Fat Albert was in 1972 and you get that whole sort of like, hey, 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 sort of (laughs) jokes and yet at the same time sort of funny down-home wisdom of African-American people, which actually stretches all the way back. It's kind of semi-insulting because it stretches all the way back to the sort of the black and white minstrel show and the streetwise sass of, of these homespun type characters. It's almost slightly patronising yeah, even it if is. it wasn't it's, meant to it be. It is kind of patronising. But then Good Times comes along and Good Times is the first black family in the ghetto. This is On TV, you mean? Yeah, you're showing, but you're showing firstly a, a black family, complete black cast, living poor and making the best of their life. And a lot of people would just outrage that they would put poor black people on television and that would somehow be something that people should watch. Mm. America was very much in denial. And so this got the the change going. Then we started to move on to no more poor families because after that, you never actually see a poor American family again. It all becomes middle class. So different strokes, the Cosby show picks up, that sort of stuff. And that's pretty much where we are today. You, you won't see impoverished people. So that's still the state of play, you reckon, right now, 2017. Only unless we dig into a real social issue, like something like The Wire, where we see people in that sort of situation, the general middle ground now is to actually to present success stories. So you pick up in the 80s and you end up with The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, okay? Um, the Will Smith sitcom. Yeah, Will Smith ends up moving into a prosperous environment, okay, with, you know, the family there. But look, more um, important shows today would be things like Power and Empire. These are more like Black Pride shows more like successful african-americans at the top of their game okay but still though there's a preserving of a very racially biased idea follow this through there's a whole sense of animal instincts that have always been sort of uh, surrounding African-American roles. It's been very hard for them to get away from that, as if somehow they've got that street magnetism, those um, those lords of the jungle, if you like. So and, again, like pretty faintly or strongly insulting yeah, so towards African-American is, people. We've transformed the contexts for the characters, but often we're still giving them the same characters. 
All right, so are we so advanced now we don't need to focus on just the one race in a TV show? Yeah, actually, uh, I feel that it's the opposite is true, that we actually need to think very carefully about how te- how television is being segregated. You see, se- segregation of TV is occurring insofar as we've got... Um, uh, Spanish families, you know, Spanish comedies and um, comedy set around, you know, uh, gay couples. And we've got comedy set around, you know, quite distinct social groups mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. But yeah. we need to look at them in a way that's actually balanced, not just a joke. Okay. So racial bias still quickly emerges when we don't take a holistic view of the of the characters. Think of Angry Boys, right? You've got Jonah. That Australian TV show. That's right. Yep. You've got Jonah, okay, is the key character in that. And he's a takeoff of an islander. Um, persona inside of the Australian context. And that was incredibly insulting. Or how about Meet the Habibs on Channel 9, which is basically a send-up of Lebanese people. Still in comedy, we're laughing at groups in a way that's just not helpful. We need programs that display different cultures accurately, if only to defeat that racial bias. We need more Redfern Nows and things like that in that ABC Aboriginal Life in Australia series. And that can make us reflect on ourselves in the way that, you know, we look at our lives. All right, well, for more insights into African-American performances ahead on The Big Picture as we shift gears and take a look at two big releases, Fences and Hidden Figures, but right now we need to get to our true or false answer. Tell us. Yeah, during the film of Storm Boy, I was filming a Storm Boy, the lead pelican dum-dum escaped from the South Australian Film Commission swing pool and did what? Caused havoc by crashing a swinging party next door, uh, deposited an unsightly white mess on Gulpalil's lunch, or attacked John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix, who were part of the film's promotion. B. You C. want to go with deposited an unsightly mess? You want to say he attacked John, uh, John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix? I just don't know how you can make that up. Yeah, well, um, he actually did A. He caused havoc by crashing a swinging party next door. Oh. Yeah, but yeah. David Gopal actually met John Lennon and Jim Hendrix, who were part of the film's promotion. Wow. Okay, if that, it was his fondest moment of the film, probably because Dum Dum wasn't there. All right, well, coming up on the big picture, a top song to shake your tail feather at and Denzel Washington's tough family drama, Fences. Welcome back. So... Gentlemen, we're about to talk very soon about Fences, new Denzel Washington film, and then later on Hidden Figures. Both of these movies are dealing with African-American people and some of the challenges and prejudices and inequalities that they face. For soundtrack this week, what better way to soundtrack a week when we're focusing on black American artists than with a song like this? i 
the unmistakable voice of Aretha Franklin. That's Think. And the reason we're featuring that is because she sang that. Go onto YouTube and just search for it, Think Aretha Franklin, and watch the clip of the, where she performed that in the film The Blues Brothers back in 1980. She actually performed a longer version than was originally released than the version originally released on the 1968 Aretha Now album. The whole thing staged in a diner that Aretha Franklin runs. It's watched on by Jake and Elwood Blues, the Blues Brothers, and the whole like dance routine and sing along is basically sparked by Aretha's man who keeps sassy his lady and so Franklin just gets up and marches on with this feminist anthem including her own sisters doing backup vocals as they basically strut their stuff and wiggle their fingers and talk about how he should think about the consequences of his own actions trying to keep his lady down that's what think is all about and that's what you get when you watch that film clip and also other African-American artists gentlemen that are featured in Blues Brothers include Ray Charles Cab Calloway John Lee Hooker and James Brown Well, Denzel Washington is no stranger to big-name films with provocative black characters. We're talking Hurricane, Training Day and Flight, just to name a few. However, his latest film in which he both directs and stars is likely to do more to raise his Oscar chances than any other. Uh, Fences is about the racial boundaries that surround Afro-Americans and starve them of both love and spiritual growth. Corey just trying to fill out your shoes. I don't want him to be like me. I want him to get as far away from my life as he possibly can get. You're the only decent thing ever happened to me, Rose. You can't be nobody but who you are, Troy. That's all you got to measure yourself against the world out there. Rose, I got something to tell you. I don't know how to tell you this. Why, Troy? Why? You ought to know. It's time. I don't want to know, damn it! What you ever give me? Your feet, them bones, that... You never done nothing but hold me back, afraid I was gonna be better than you. Everything that boy do, he do for you. It's not easy for me to admit that I've been standing in the same place for 18 years. Well, I've been standing with you. I got a life too. Don't you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? Denzel Washington and Viola Davis star in a story about a man whose life has been warped by the poverty and discrimination forced on him by black-white relations. Now, Denzel plays a fellow called Troy Maxson. He's an embittered sort of garbage collector who became a barrier. He basically ends up becoming a barrier to his own son's success because mm. he can't believe that his son could actually succeed in this white man's world, even though the racism he's railing against has probably shifted into the background by now. The very things he's he's complaining about just aren't there anymore. It's based on a play by August Wilson. It is probably, who also did the screenplay, by the way, it is probably one of the best written films I have ever watched. I mean, the, ever? Best yeah, written films say, ever? When wow. you, as a scriptwriter, when you sit down and listen to the dialogue, each sentence is so well-crafted and then so well-delivered by the actors that you just go, gosh, this is art. It's really worth watching. So mm. I think yeah, if you're a once-a-year film watcher, mm. okay, I would head off to the pictures to see this This one. could be your once-a-year film. You would not be upset with what Viola Davis and Denzel Washington do. It's a story about relationships. It's not just black and white, but between friends, between fathers and sons, between husbands and wives, and between people and the God who sees and judges everything. It's, it's an amazing film. Whoa. Uh, well, I'm a bit flabbergasted by these big calls that you're coming out with, <laughs> yeah, Mark. Yeah. And, um, Take that. I've just become, I was already interested in Fences. Now I'm way more interested than I was about than 30 seconds ago. But what about the effect that racism has on the on the life of choice? I don't give 
too much away. Like, don't we don't want to spoil things. But I'm, spoil. I'm very curious about the, how the how intense this is, that intensely it's affected this character of Troy. Well, what I'm about to say, you get a lot of this in the first few minutes of the film, so it's no big deal. It's kind of set up. Um, Troy. We're meeting him when all of the best opportunities of his life have already passed him by. And he looks back on everything that has happened in the past and says it's racism that that messed me up. It's racism that that prevented me. And the big thing is that he could have been a baseball star. And he's saying the white man would never have let me become a baseball star. It's racism that's done that. So when his son is offered a college scholarship um, to go play football, he just says, wake up to yourself. And he's actually his son's own worst enemy in this case. Uh, And what's obvious is that Troy has had all of the hope and the grace sort of squeezed out of him by racism so that even now... Even though the the tension itself might have been released, he's got no grace and hope to offer anybody else because he just can't see the world any other way. So, so what you're saying, like racism has effectively kind of moulded the way Troy sees the world. Does it impact him, like his whole character? Like, does it actually shape his morals? Yeah, that's actually a really good point because the way he judges things has now been based on his response to all this racism. Now, what he's ta- taught himself to do is to demand what he's worked for. Okay, so he has some rights. At the very least, he can get paid at the end of the week. Mm-hmm. At the very least, he has a right to drive the truck because he can drive. You know, he should be allowed to. So everything is very much about entitlement. Okay, uh, and this affects him morally. So he works and sacrifices for the sake of his family. He gives up everything for them. So he is entitled to take liberties with his morals. Let's face it. Oh, right. So so entitlement goes beyond like the, the kind of the effects of racism and and basically like uh, butting up against like you did this to me, like white guys. I'm going to now do this. It's going even further yeah, throughout so his he, whole life. And it's not necessarily like he's he's uh, affecting the way that he reacts to white people. He's affecting the way he reacts to his wife and to his children. You owe it to me. I can go out and spend time drinking. I can go out and do other things. I don't want to give away the plot of the film. But I can go and behave in a way that other people would condemn because I have sacrificed. I have given up everything for you. I have... His whole life is about entitlement. you know, And that's really a, a strange way of seeing things. Uh, does God show up in fences, Mark? Yeah, yeah, he does. And, and that's really interesting because mainly through his, uh, Rose, which is Viola Davis's character, the wife of Troy. Um, She's she, been Oscar nominated for this, yeah, hasn't yeah. she? Yeah, and she's a, a very powerful character, a quiet, supportive wife, but has clearly sacrificed a lot to love Troy. She prays, she goes to the church. Troy doesn't. That's definitely part of her life. But otherwise, God's really kind of silent and observing. So you see him turn up in interesting things, shots of a cross sitting on a wall as an argument is going on, shots of a picture of Jesus over the sink uh, as someone is struggling to carry out their daily life, shots of Viola praying, and an interesting shot, this one, look out for it, where every other sound is taken out as if there's nothing that comes back from prayer. It's just this silence. So God's just this observer. Yet God's always talked about there is going to be a judgment at the end. And I think if there's a struggle with the film, there is this sense that Troy is going to win his way through to heaven Mm. because he's entitled, because he's loved the best way he knew how, even though that love is in some cases is actually really quite reprehensible. Um, It's a very conflicting film. It makes you think a lot. It challenges you about whether or not someone deserves grace deserves heaven at the end.
All right, Fences stars uh, Denzel Washington, Viola Davis, and Stephen McKinley Henderson. It's rated PG for mild themes, sexual references, and coarse language, and Mark rates it an M for must-see. It opened nationally on February 9th, so go and see it if you uh, want to. Quickly, gentlemen, Insights Magazine and website, insights.uca.org.au. Big supporters of the big picture. And just to announce that coming up later in the show, Insights Managing Editor Adrian Drayton is going to share his well, his insights into one of cinema's most influential black actors, Sidney Poitier. That's coming up later in the show. Well, before we get to that, uh, coming up on The Big Picture, a young leader on Indigenous issues will talk with us about how Aboriginal people are being represented in Australian movies and TV shows. Welcome back. Well, our show this week has been filled with reviews and reflections about African-Americans in movies and TV shows. But what about similar ethnic groups closer to home? Well, Brooke Prentice is an Aboriginal spokesperson for Common Grace, a Christian activist group dedicated to justice issues. And she joins us on the line right now to speak with us about how Aboriginal Australians have been represented on screen lately. So, hello to Brooke. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, no worries, Brooke. Thanks for joining us. Now, Brooke, I want to kick off by asking you about something that was recently on air around Australia Day. There was that lamb ad. Um, what did you think of that? There was For people who didn't see it, the ad was basically trying to be, well, I thought it was trying to be, a lighthearted approach to Australian history since European settlement, and it featured Indigenous actors welcoming all other nations to these shores over a barbie, if you can believe it. Brooke, what did you make of that depiction of Indigenous Australians? It was a really hard one. I mean, uh, Australia Day or the 26th of January is always really a time of conflict for any Aboriginal person, whether you Mm, mm. support or don't support um, Australia Day being on the 26th of January. So that lamb ad um, did tick a lot of good boxes, but it did fall short on a lot. And I guess it's particularly fell short on the true depiction of our history. And I guess you could argue, well, it wasn't supposed to show the true history, but the truth behind it for us is that Captain Cook um, or Captain Arthur Phillip didn't arrive on our shores uh, and had a barbie with us. Um, Mm -hmm. They brought guns and, um, you know, there were actually two Aboriginal men on the shore when uh, Captain Cook came ashore in 1770 and he shot at them. So the fact that this lamb ad even had two Aboriginal men on the shore, um, it, it brings back those generational memories of the true history of this country. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so even if it was trying to be a bit of a joke and a bit playful, it could definitely have offended people in the Indigenous community in Australia. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Because we still live with the consequences of stolen land and stolen generations and stolen wages um, because it's happened right through our history and stolen generations right up until the 1970s. So, And our country still hasn't matured enough to be able to uh, you know, have a conversation uh, about what that means and uh, for that to be embedded in the Australian psyche about our true history. So, Brooke, what about any positive representations of Indigenous Australians on our screens recently? Have you seen anything that you liked yeah absolutely there's um just recently uh, a series on nitv called family rules uh so a strong aboriginal mother raising nine uh aboriginal um daughters Mm -hmm. uh and it was just such a great representation of what it means to be an aboriginal family um their father had died in a coward punch attack in 2004 uh and so such an amazing which is a story that no one's probably ever heard 
heard of because the mainstream media aren't representing what happens to Aboriginal people. Um, and so a coward punch attack in 2004 should have made news across the country, uh, but it was an Aboriginal man that, that died, um, unfortunately. But this story shows such a strong Aboriginal mother and role model and um, really shows, uh, you know, just a modern Aboriginal family or Australian family. Yes, um, yes. The highs and the lows, the humour that comes from that and also embracing culture. So one of my favourite episodes was um, their nan was taking them back to country uh, and, um, you know, nan wanted to pray before they went on this big road trip. And, I mean, you know, even on our mainstream media, you don't see um, or TV shows see people praying. And here was Aboriginal nan trying to bring together the family mob to have a prayer for the road trip and yeah, you know, sounds... the younger ones trying to fight against that. And That sounds just... pretty memorable, Brooke. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. No, no, uh, quickly, Brooke, while we've still got you, Brooke Prentice from Common Grace, I just wanted to ask you very quickly, are there any areas for improvement, do you think, with, of Aboriginal roles being up on screen? Any areas for improvement? Yeah, I think we can still uh, improve a lot. So I think Miranda Tapsell's speech in the Logies in 2015, where she called for um, more beautiful people of colour to be on TV, um, which connects viewers uh in a way that can transcend race and unite us. They were her words. And mm. I think, um, you know, TV and movies is a great way to do that. And for someone who would love to see reconciliation built in this nation, and that being friendship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples, uh, TV shows and movies are a great way to do that. And so, um, you know, it wasn't until 2014 that Neighbours had its first uh, main Aboriginal character. Um, I would love to see a show like Home and Away, you know, have a strong Aboriginal character like what we've seen in Family Rules. Someone um, who's a modern Aboriginal person who's connected to culture uh, and, you know, grapples with the stuff we grapple with on a daily basis. But to see that through um, TV uh, and role models produced for younger Aboriginal kids as well as non-Aboriginal kids um, would really go a long way to helping this country to heal. Thank you very much. Brooke Prentice, Aboriginal spokesperson from Common Grace. Well, getting a human being to the moon was one of the biggest technical achievements ever. One of the untold stories about that very moon mission was the crucial involvement of several African-American women. Hidden Figures tells that story, and Ben learned plenty of things about the perseverance of individuals and also of prejudice. We go from being our father's daughters to our husband's wives to our baby's mothers. You've been gone for 300 hours. Was mama gone for 12 and a half days? No, but it felt like it. It felt like it to me too. It's crunch time. In 14 days, astronauts will be here for training. Everything we do is going to matter to their wives, to their children. I believe it's going to matter to the whole damn country. My gals are ready. We can do the work. So Hidden Figures is set in 1961. Civil rights is still raging in the US, and so is NASA's fever pitch to reach the moon. And we're introduced to three real-life characters. This is all based on a true story. There's Catherine, played by Tereja P. Henson. She's a computer, as in she's a human who computes things. She's a mathematical genius. Dorothy Octavia Spencer, who was a supervisor of these human computers, and Mary who's played by Janelle Monet, who's also in Moonlight at Cinemas at the moment. She's an engineer's assistant. And across the course of the film, we get this uh, interesting contrast, not just between 
uh, civil rights and how that's playing out in the in the country versus like what's going on with trying to get to the moon, but also women's rights are being played out as well up on screen. You know, there are a number of movies about African American people who are struggling against racism. I don't want to be indelicate, but has it become a genre? Yeah. Like, is it, it's like yeah. a, this is just the one about NASA now and racism in the space program? Yeah, it, I think it kind of sounds like that, but Hidden Figures is definitely better than that. I think it's very similar to The Help, but it's not quite as intense, but it's still very well measured for mainstream crowds. So it sounds like a bit of a gimmick almost that NASA's been thrown into this, but I, I don't think it is. Instead, it's just it's picked up a very interesting story out of some very interesting part of history and put it up on screen and done it in a deliberate way that where there's a lot of measuring of the elements. So I didn't find this film hit you over the head. Instead, it's really quite subtle as it goes along. There's a lot of humor in it, a lot of levity, as in it, it really tries to... If sometimes I thought it was almost too glib, almost too playful with what's happening up on screen. But you bring all these things together, longer Hidden Figures goes along, I think it becomes a very subtle and therefore powerful depiction of what some African-American women are facing in their workplace but also in broader society as well without punching you in the face with it. Yeah, you bring up women, and I, obviously the film is about you know three key women. Um, it, it, does racism against women in this context differ from racism against men? I mean, what does that look, distinction look like? Yeah, I was, was going to say it's interesting. I don't know if that's the right word for, for when you talk about racism. But in contrast to, say, Fences, which was presenting more, it sounds like, the effect of racism on men, here you do, you do, uh, do get much more of a focus on women. And there seems to be a contrast going on where it's almost like when it comes to racism, men are perceived as threats if they're from a different race, particularly African-American in this case, but women are more treated as pets. Mm. So they're more kind of patronized, talked down to. So not only are women trying to struggle against being treated differently because they're of a different race, but the women that we're seeing focused on in Hidden Figures are also combating being treated, like patronized, being talked down to in the workplace. So everything from just how they're treated, let alone the options that they've got career-wise, to the jokes that they have to encounter and the put-downs are all there as well. So you get in Hidden Figures a bit of a melting pot when it comes to racism and sexism Gosh, it's like coming a ra- into it. It's like a prejudice stew. It is like a prejudice <laughs> stew, which again could have come out, I think, as a bit of a slop and it could either have been too heavy-handed or just like too many things going on at once but i think it's a big credit to those behind hidden figures that it doesn't become a massive mess but instead it's an enjoyable but provocative watch well after seeing it ben did you leave the cinema wanting to go out and fight against racial inequality Nah, not so much. As as in, you know, well, you should know racial inequality is bad. Mm. And, and this film definitely isn't trying to endorse it in any particular way. It's, it's, it's saying, let's go for equality. But it doesn't end on a big note of calling to arms. This film, I thought it was more a presentation of history, which reveals some of the players in it who did do that. And somehow they did it through maths, which is really quite amazing. But it got me thinking, like, I'm... I'm I'm not a massive fan of the space race. I don't really get why people are so fixated about going to space. There's a there's a character in this film played by Kevin Costner who is like the, one of the bosses at NASA and he keeps banging on about how important it is that America gets to space first because it's going to help our survival and all this kind of thing. But one of the best things about Hidden Figures for me as I was thinking about it later is there's a constant contrast going on about all these human achievements that are being pushed for, but what are we actually doing down here on Earth? So you might be able to get a man to the moon, but you can't actually get to each other. 
I think is, is something that uh, Hidden Figures is, is revealing. If you sit back and think about it enough, and again, the film's subtle and entertaining and a great mainstream watch. It's a really excellent film. But if you think about it more, it should challenge you, I think, about what are we actually striving for? Why are we trying to do bigger and better things like go to the moon back in the 60s when clearly in and around that as Hidden Figures powerfully demonstrates there are things not right down here on earth and maybe we could be chucking some more time into that yeah, well hidden figure stars Taraji henson octavia spencer janelle monet and kevin costner it opened at cinemas on thursday and is rated pg for mild themes and coarse language well coming up on the big picture one of the most influential and game-changing actors ever and ben unveils the top five moments in black cinema history welcome back to the show Pretty much the most famous and game-changing African-American actor is Sidney Poitier. The first African-American to win a Best Actor Oscar, Poitier was one of Hollywood's biggest stars in the late 1950s and 1960s. So, for The Vault this week, Insights editor Adrian Drayton spoke with Ben about the movies, skills and legacy of Sir Sidney Poitier. If you go to IMDb, he's done about 50 films, but some of the more well-known ones, he won an Academy Award for Lilies in the Field in 1963. Other people might know films of his like To Sir With Love, In the Heat of the Night, and perhaps one of his more celebrated roles in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was uh, in and of itself quite groundbreaking because it talked about interracial, inter, interracial relationships at the time. He's got a huge body of work. Lilies in the Field, he was the first African-American to win in the Best Actor or Actress category, right? He was, indeed. And, and it was obviously the Best Actor. Yes, it was Best Actor. He's one of those actors who has endured and become a bit of a cinema icon to some degree because of his body of work and what the films that he was involved in said about culture at the time and race relations, particularly films like In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but many other films he was called upon, I guess, to his roles were about the state of coloured people in those times and that's I think why what makes his body of work so impressive because it was during the 60s and 70s when we had things like the civil rights movement. And what was it about him as an actor do you think that uh, hit people at the time and also should strike us now? I think he's, he's a bit like, he's, he reminds me a bit of the ilk of Laurence Olivier in that he was one of those people who brought always brought gravitas to a film role and you believed his performances and obviously films today like we're seeing a bit of resurgence with hidden figures and fences uh, those films are influenced most certainly by some of his work. Oh, you mean a resurgence in terms of films that are looking at the issues of African Americans in the States and you think what that almost points us back to Sidney Poitier, the films that he was in and the fact that he was a groundbreaking actor of his time in movies about those exact subjects. Absolutely, I agree, t I agree totally with that. Are you suggesting now, Adrian, that we rush out and watch some Sidney Poitier films and if we do, which one? My favourite is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I think because it's just one of those iconic films. Fun fact, the name of the family in the film is Drayton but um, also it's got a bit of a twist to it the people who have issues with interracial relationship aren't who you think it's a great relationship drama it stars Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy 
So it's a fantastic film to watch. I've watched it just recently, but many other of his films like To Serve With Love and In The Heat Of The Night are also worth watching. Adrian Drayton from Insights Magazine, a big supporter of our show. And of course, another huge supporter of The Big Picture is Eternity Newspaper, which covers all sorts of challenging topics, including racism, with such stories as Indigenous Leaders Offended by Lamad. We spoke briefly earlier with Common Grace's Brooke Prentice about Aboriginals on Australian screens. So you can head over to Eternity now for all sorts of thoughts from her on that, as well as hearing from other Indigenous leaders. Yes, it is time for the top five, and we're keeping with our theme, Ben. That's right, to finish off the show where we've been talking a lot, particularly about African-American TV shows and cinema. Let's hear the top five moments in black cinema. Five. Do the Right Thing from 1989. I picked this because it was directed and written by Spike Lee, who is an African-American director, part of a new wave of American directors that came out in the late 80s, early 90s, alongside guys like Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Do the Right Thing. It is rated R, so I'm not necessarily suggesting people rush out to see it, but it is an amazing, vibrant, distinct, powerful, shocking, funny, and incredibly searing document of the troubled times in New York City in the late 1980s, and it dives head-on into racism issues, not just within the African-American community, but within all kinds of other ethnic communities that are like all put together in one suburb of New York City. Do the Right Thing is an incredibly explosive look at racism from the late 80s. Mm, right off the bat. Four. I thought I'd broaden this out a little bit. So we're doing top five moments in black cinema. We've talked a lot, particularly about American films this edition. So I thought I would broaden out across the world and go for The Gods Must Be Crazy from 1980 mm. because it was focused on a Kalahari desert bushman called Z. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. See? And do, I don't know if you guys remember this, but this that is, film was such a global yeah. phenomena. Mm. It was incredible. It, it's still the most successful South African film. It was uh, bankrolled by South African studios. But for a film that focused on a Kalahari Desert Bushman about a Coke bottle falling from the sky and the people in his village don't know where it comes from and they see it initially as a blessing from the gods and they see it as a curse and he has to go on a mission to be rid of it. That film... I. Put it on the list because it basically took over the world in 1980. Yeah. It was, it was an incredible thing where I remember as a kid, cinema listings saying that The Gods Must Be Crazy is still showing in cinemas. And that was a year after it came out and it was showing every single day for a year. And this <laughs> wow. was in Perth in Western Australia when I was a kid. And I think even the premise of the film sounds a little bit patronising, like we're meant to be laughing at so-called primitive villages over in Africa. But the film was much more a funny clash of cultures and beliefs. The God Must Be Crazy from Actually, 1980. I remember it being a really kind of insightful laugh a few times at the white culture around it as he's trying to understand the strange world he's finding himself in. Yeah. Definitely worth going back and checking out. Three. I'm not sure how I was going to be able to do this list without putting Denzel Washington into it. So here he comes He's in. He's basically mainly the list. That, that's like right. He, he given, could dominate a top and five. And given we just heard from Adrian banging on about how great Sir Sidney <laughs> Poitier is, I figured I couldn't put him into the list. And I want to give a special shout out to James Earl Jones oh. for changing pop culture as the voice oh. of Darth Vader. Mm. Not just because Darth Vader was all dressed in black, but because African-American actor James Earl Jones did such an incredible voice job mm. with Darth Vader that he's basically seared pop culture for the rest of time. Especially you know he was also Thulsa Doom in Conan the Barbarian? Uh, you remember that I very do. distinctly. <laughs> I, how he changed that genre 
Yeah, not getting anyway. a shout out for that, <laughs> okay. Darth Vader. But Denzel Washington here at number three on top five moments in black cinema history. We've already alluded to it earlier in the show that Denzel Washington was the first African-American man to pick up an Best Actor Oscar for Training Day in 2001. Which is kind of amazing, right? The Oscars have been going, I think, what, since the 20s, maybe? Mm. Something like that. They've been going a long time. I seem to remember so. It took till... Yeah, you were there. (laughs) At at the the original ones. See, it took till 2001 for an African-American actor to take at home. Denzel Washington seems like the right kind of guy because after Sidney Poitier, he's probably the best-known black American actor like the world's world's ever seen. Could have picked up a whole whole history back catalogue of his roles, but he in Training Day as that corrupt mm. cop Alonzo basically encapsulates what's been so great about Denzel Washington over his entire career. You get everything from his charisma and his cheekiness and his funniness to his grit and like the way he can pour out a soul and, and make you like feel empathy even for a complete jerk. All those kind of things was wrapped up in the character of Alonzo in Training Day, which is why Denzel Washington comes in at number three. Two. As I said before, I was broadening it back out, trying not to just focus on American products. And that's why this is a maybe slightly controversial claim, but at number two out of the top five moments in black cinema, Ten Canoes. The Australian From 2006, film. the Australian film Ten Canoes, a the, landmark Australian film. So this is going to have a lot to do with your personal response to the film, hey? Uh, very much so, but I think for anyone who's seen it, I presume, well, not anyone, but a lot of people seeing it would have had a very similar response, but they might not have known the backstory behind it, and that's part of the reason I put it in at number two. So this is from a South Australian director, writer-director called Rolf Dehier, who I got to interview a number of years ago. I used to work at the newspaper in Adelaide when this film came out and got to speak with Rolf Dehier a bunch of times. And he told me like amazing stories about how this film got put together over a long period of time with the people of Ramanginning, who, which is a small community about 560 kilometers east of Darwin, so super remote. Mm. And he came into contact with them because of the great Australian actor David Golpalil, who mm. we mentioned at the top of the show. So David Golpalil, Ramanginning people, Rolf Dehir, all collaborated together on this story based on an idea Golpalil had. He saw a picture, it somehow involved 10 canoes, and they constructed this almost dreamtime fable about this this uh, remote community all together. So it wasn't Rolf Tahir coming in and saying, I should make a movie about you or someone else imposing a storyline on it. It was completely created collaboratively with an indigenous community in Australia. I thought the end results were fantastic. It's a marvellous, marvellous piece of work. And also, uh, David Golpilil stars in it alongside his son, Jamie Golpilil. Well worth watching 10 Canoes from 2006. No Pelicans, a reference to last week's show. One. You and the Pelicans. Okay, <laughs> number one. I'm not sure it could have been anything else apart from 1939's Gone with the Wind, Hattie McDaniel. Mm. She was the first African-American person to win an Oscar. The first African-American person to win an Oscar. And that was back in 1939 for Best Supporting Actress as the character of Mammy in the very famous Gone with the Wind. Most people remember Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler, the characters Vivian Lee and Clark Gable played. But Mammy, who was basically like the... She was the hired help in the in the big plantation house, but she she was also kind of the mother figure yeah, almost the to, to, to Scarlett O'Hara's character. So... 
you get sass and a bit of patronizing air going on, like mixing in, like because of the times towards this role. But Mammy did scold Scarlett a lot, to, like gave her her due, and she also sneers a lot at Rhett Butler, which is kind of phenomenal at the time. And also Hattie McDaniel on screen, but also from winning that award, really became a si- signal of dignity and defiance and individual individualism, despite the circumstances. So because she was the first. To win at the Oscars, I thought we should salute Hattie McDaniel from Gone with the Wind as number one in the top five moments in black cinema history. Oh, now, Miss Scarlett, you come on and be good and eat just a little. No! I'm going to have a good time today and do my eating at the barbecue. If you don't care what folks says about this family, I does. I has told you and told you that you can always tell a lady but the way that she eat in front of folks like a bird. And I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkerson's and eat like a field hand and gobble like a hog. Fiddle-dee-dee. Ashley Wilkes told me he liked to see a girl with a healthy appetite. What gentleman says and what they thinks is two different things. And I ain't noticed Mr. Ashley Axon for to marry you. There you go, gentlemen. Top five <laughs> moments in black cinema history. Give me lots to look through. All right. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, but coming up next week <laughs> on <Yay>! the <laughs> time time Ben McKagan. Coming up next week on the show, adults get into a schoolyard brawl in fist fights, and battles continue elsewhere on cinema screens with Matt Damon's Chinese epic, The Great Wall. And we continue our great countdown to March twenty when we shift to the beginning of the week, Monday nine pm. So I'll still be Mark Hadley, and I will also be not Mark Hadley but Ben McKagan. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 